Welcome to Inside the War Room. Right, right here, as always, as always, today, Noam Chomsky. That's right, the legend, Noam Chomsky. And before we get to that, let me just encourage you to go to warroommedia.com, sign up for the newsletter. We talk about, obviously, this podcast and I think some sports, and we have all kinds of things that we're doing over there. So would love for you to be a part of the newsletter at warroommedia.com. And listen, if you want to give me your feedback about Noam Chomsky, which I'm sure you're going to have some good, bad, or indifferent. He says some controversial things. That is the spot to do it. So be sure to head over there. And without further ado, let's get talking to Noam Chomsky. Noam, welcome to the War Room. Thank you. Okay. A lot to cover. Let's get into it. Obviously, you have a new book coming out. Um, you're, you're a prolific author, but why this book now? Actually, there are so many books, you have to tell me which one you're talking <laughs> about. The one with VJ? Withdrawal. Withdrawal, right. Yeah, why, why withdrawal now? Why, why did you want to put that book out now? Well, it was a period when the U.S. had been through various exercises and aggression and violence, they had all, they had horrendous effects on the, uh, on the victims, which we discussed, but they had all ended up with uh, not the kind of uh, victory that US planners had been uh, anticipating. US technically withdrew from them, uh, moved on to, other exercises, all of this is against the background of what in general is regarded as the decline of US polar power in the world, which both of us think has to be interpreted in a rather nuanced way, decline in some respects, uh, change in other respects. It's a, it's I think a pretty special moment in modern history, when there are significant changes taking place, the Ukraine war has accelerated them. So this seemed to us a moment of reassessment, which would be valuable. That was our conception. How did the U.S. find itself in this place of decline, at least in some areas? What went wrong? Well, first of all, we have to put it in historical perspective. Uh, at the end of the Second World War, the United States had a position of power that had no precedent in human history. The United States had almost half of the wealth of the world, a uh, position of security, which was just unparalleled. It uh, controlled the Western Hemisphere control the oceans, control the opposite sides of both hemispheres. Uh, other industrial powers had been severely weakened or virtually destroyed. The war was uh, very productive for the United States, got the country out of the depression, uh, manufacturing production almost quadrupled. The US was so, just incomparably beyond the rest of the world. Well, there had to be, that couldn't remain. So it was certain that there was going to be some kind of decline from that. 
decline actually began in 1949. Uh, then an event took place, which is called in the United States, interestingly, the loss of China. It's an interesting term if you think about it. Like, I can't lose your computer, right? Uh, the presupposition is we own the world. China became independent, so it's the loss of China. Huge effect internally. Uh, where can you cast the blame? McCarthyism and so on. Uh, immediately, the US, right after Chinese independence, switched its policy on Indochina. It uh, moved from sort of neutrality to directly supporting the French effort to reconquer the former colony. Won't go into the details, but that ended up turning into the Indochina Wars, the by far the worst atrocity since the Second World War. Well, meanwhile, other countries were beginning to recover from wartime destruction. Europe was recovering. Uh, Japan was recovering, not China yet. By around 1970, the world was generally regarded as tripolar, uh, center of power in North America, based in the United States, Europe, mainly in Germany, Japan-based system beginning to recover. Japan's recovery was based very significantly on first the Korean War, then the Indochina War where Japan was a kind of a backup power that uh, profited enormously from the war, as did South Korea. But uh, so the United States no longer had half the world's wealth, maybe 25%, still plenty of it. And since then, then the spectacular growth of China took place, lifting 800,000 people out of poverty, it's unheard of. Uh, became a major power. Um, so the world began to change. On the other hand, the decline is, you've got to be careful about that. So if you look at share of world wealth, the US share has declined from maybe 40% in 1945 to maybe 20% now. But that's kind of misleading because we've moved into a globalized economy in which transnational corporations are the basis for the world's wealth. And they're mostly in the US. There's very good work on this by a young political economist, Sean Stars, uh, who points out that concludes from detailed studies that US-based multinationals have about half the world's wealth. And that's a measure of economic power. Uh, and of course, they're closely linked to the US government. So the world's a complicated place, but, but, and of course, if you look at the military dimension, US is so far ahead of anyone else that you can't even talk about it. Uh, US military spending is about five times China, the next biggest, and that's a country five times the size with enemies at every border. The US has no security problems. Uh, so US is far ahead in the military dimension. 
it's uh, the other economies, mainly China, uh, are competitive in the economic dimension. So the world's become more complicated. You bring up China, um, obviously a, uh, always a hot topic on this show, it seems. Um, what are your thoughts about how COVID has impacted China? They've, their response has been obviously a lot of lockdowns, a lot of shutdowns. Um, now there's talk of them possibly um, invading Taiwan. Historically, they've used the Taiwan when their economy's bad as a distraction. Do you think that China is going to be an aggressor uh, and possibly move on Taiwan? Um, or do you think this is more sable rattling? Well, let's talk about the response to COVID. The total number of US deaths, roughly a million. Total number of Chinese deaths, a couple thousand. If you compare population sizes, the Chinese policies have saved several million people from death. Is that a failure? In the West, that's considered a failure because you have to blame your enemy for being a failure. On human terms, that doesn't look like much of a failure. Uh, so yes, they've, uh, have, they, have they suffered economically from these policies? Not when compared with the West. Uh, they've, the economy has suffered, but it's still, uh, GDP growth is considerably higher than the West. Uh, now the, there is a question, can they sustain the zero COVID policy? Well, I don't know. But so far, at least in terms of uh, saving lives, it's an enormous success as compared with the West. About Taiwan, I don't think there's any indication that China wants to invade Taiwan and uh, get into what might be a nuclear war in which it would be destroyed. They have a policy on Taiwan. Up until recently, it's been a shared policy with the US. It's called the One China policy. It goes back to the 1970s. Both sides recognize that Taiwan is part of China. Both sides tacitly agree not to do anything provocative about it. From the Chinese point of view, looking in the long term, they expect that sooner or later, Taiwan will be reintegrated with China, the rest of China. Uh, US has been taking pretty provocative uh, actions recently. Pelosi visit was one. These lead to a Chinese reaction. So the Pelosi visit led to China's uh, mobilizing in an interesting way. What they did was deploy naval forces in a way to show dramatically that if they wanted to blockade Taiwan, they could. Nobody could do anything about it. Taiwan's an island depends on trade and commerce. Uh, and uh, if the provocations continue, Chinese reactions will continue. I don't want to suggest that China's blameless in this. They've taken some actions too. But in general, the 
idea that they're planning to invade Taiwan, I think is just uh, more US, US British propaganda. So on the COVID death numbers, how do you evaluate that? Because it's quite often um, out of China that numbers are, are skewed or slanted to represent what the CCP, uh, not CCP, yeah, they, yeah, CCP wants you to believe. And in the West, there was a debate at some point, at least in the US, about the sensitivity of tests. So how do we take the COVID numbers and compare them from country to country? Well, the international monitors like Johns Hopkins University in the United States, they take the figure seriously. So I don't see any reason to doubt them. Okay, and so when you're saying that the US and British are probably behind more propaganda around Chinese aggression around Taiwan than actual aggression, what benefit would that be for the US or the Brits? Remember that the US and Britain are basically the warrior states. They're the ones who are regularly involved in aggressive war, violent, aggressive war. They have to mobilize their populations in defense against something. Okay, now it'll be defense against China. There's a lot of talk about the China threat, not just the invasion, alleged invasion of, of uh, Taiwan, but all sorts of talk about Chinese aggression. There's plenty of criticisms you can make about China could go through them. But what's the Chinese aggression? What countries have they attacked? Can't think of any. US and Britain are attacking countries all the time. In fact, you take a look at US Chinese relations, uh, the United States, I'll use the official term US ter terminology. Uh, the US is encircling China with hostile sentinel states, states ringing China, equipped with high-level weapons, including precision weapons other Biden aimed at China, South Korea, Japan, Guam, uh, Australia, uh, New Zealand. They're trying to get India into it, but India is reluctant. This is surrounding China with aggressive states, highly armed, aimed at China. Is China doing that in the Caribbean? I mean, what's the aggression? You can point to some things. In the South China Sea, China's making claims on what are called islands, in fact, rocks, uh, in violation of international law. The United States is not in much of a position to object to that, not only because of the geography, but because the United States is the only maritime power that doesn't accept the law. Now, there's conflicts over what's called freedom of navigation in China's what are called economic exclusive zones. But you have to remember here that there's no threat against navigation, none. No threat against commercial navigation. The issue is, can, uh, does the law of the sea, which the United States doesn't accept, does the law of the sea permit uh, military 
maneuvers in a country's exclusive zone. The United States says yes. It says we can send uh, aircraft carriers uh, through China's economic exclusive zone. China says no. China's joined by India, Malaysia, other countries, which also say no, no military maneuvers. So there is a there is a question, but to call that Chinese aggression is a, a little rich. Uh, the problem, there is a China threat, a very real one. China doesn't follow orders. It's engaged in what US records call successful defiance, like Cuba. The threat of Cuba back to the 1960s, look at the official records, successful defiance of US policies. Can't tolerate that if you're the boss. Well, China's a little bigger than Cuba. So China's refusal to follow orders is very serious. It's not like Europe. When the United States uh, destroys the joint agreement with uh, Iran and imposes harsh sanctions on Iran, Europe strenuously objects, but they abide by US orders. They follow them. Uh, China doesn't disregard them. That's an intolerable threat to the master of the world. Uh, and in fact, you see it in US policy. So when the United States is a domestic policy, uh, it's been understood known for a long time that infrastructure in the United States is seriously declining. Uh, bridges are collapsing, subways don't work and so on. Uh, Congress finally got around to passing a small infrastructure bill for once Republicans didn't object. They don't want the bridges to collapse. Take a look at the name of the bill. It's the China Competition Bill. The only way we can spend money to fix our collapsing bridges is to compete with China. I mean, it's a very strange country, the United States. It's uh, been at war throughout its history. Uh, very violent, very aggressive, far beyond any competitor. So we have to have war. Yeah. So, and I think that part of the, one of the things I've argued before is that we have these internal debates about life and um whether it's a, a, a racial issue or an abortion issue. And I point to that our country has been at war my whole life, basically, um, but my kid's whole life. And so we, we're constantly at a state of, of killing people outside of our borders. And it makes it hard to clearly understand those lines inside of our borders because we, we promulgate this, this wartime mentality um, all over the world with no thoughts of who is being killed or not. And so it makes it tough to have these internal discussions about what is just and unjust, it seems. Now you're talking about your lifetime, but you can go back to 17, this is the 1780s. Mm -hmm. The United States has been at war almost every year throughout its history. Yes. It, uh, first was extermination of the indigenous population, 
conquest of half of Mexico, uh, establishing, stealing Hawaii by force, uh, then on to interventions all over the world. Uh, your lifetime, yes, constant war. It's uh, it's uh, it's a unique country. So, would you then say that um, when we hear the argument of like the COVID lab leak theory, uh, should we view that as China has a potential motivation to release the COVID nineteen, or is that more along the lines of the U.S. British provocation that you alluded to earlier? I don't think there's any serious scientist who thinks that China released the, the COVID. It's a possibility that it was leaked from the Wuhan laboratory where Chinese and American scientists were conducting so-called gain of function. Sorry. There is a controversy over whether the uh, a virus came from the wet market or leaked out of a lab, but I don't think there's any serious proposal that it was purposely leaked. That would be crazy. Okay, so let's move now to uh, the Middle East here for just a second. Um, obviously, we've seen a recent uh, debacle of U.S. foreign policy as it pertains to Afghanistan withdrawal. Um, the war in Iraq, you know, obviously has been problematic for many years. What should the U.S. policy be in regards to the Middle East? It should be about the opposite of what it is. It should be supportive of peace and justice instead of being supportive of or directly involved in aggression, violence, and subversion. I mean, there are a lot of, let's take the, take the main issue in the Middle East, what the U.S. considers the main issue, uh, Iran's nuclear weapons programs. Well, what should our policy be about that? And first of all, let's go back a couple of years. There was an agreement, a joint agreement, JCPOA, United States, European countries, and Iran. It was successful. Investigation, inspection regime was working. US intelligence agrees with that. United Nations Security Council unanimously endorsed it. Then what happened? US pulled out. Says, sorry, we don't want this anymore. And then it imposed harsh sanctions on Iran to punish Iran for the fact that the United States had dismantled the treaty. Well, now there are negotiations about, uh, you know, how to reconstitute something, but it's as if this didn't take place. Uh, in the very effective US uh, uh, propaganda system, you don't talk about it. You talk about Iran's misdeeds. Incidentally, there's a very simple solution, simple, straightforward solution to the uh, nuclear, whatever uh, problem Iranian nuclear programs uh, cause. Everybody knows what it is. 
establish a nuclear weapons-free zone in the region with intensive inspections, which we know work. What's holding that up? Who's against it? The Arab states in the region strongly in favor of it. Iran is strongly in favor of it. Uh, the whole global south, 134 countries, strongly in favor of it. Europe supports it. What's the problem? U.S. blocks it. That's the problem. U.S. will not permit Israeli nuclear weapons to be inspected. Now, in fact, the U.S. doesn't even acknowledge their existence. Uh, actually, it's kind of interesting the way this is treated here, mostly by silence. Uh, but the New York Times about a year ago actually had an editorial about it, almost. New York Times editors came out and said, here's a great solution to the Iranian problem, a Persian Gulf nuclear-free zone. Notice, not a Middle East nuclear-free zone. Persian Gulf. Why? Because Israel's nuclear weapons are non-negotiable. Okay. That tells you what the major problem is. Okay, you look around, you find other things. It's not that there's plenty of criticism to make of other countries, but we're talking about the United States, That's, which is dumb. It's controlled the Middle East for pretty much since the Second World War, not in pretty ways. You mentioned Israel, which is what I was going to bring up next, because you do have the Iranian issue, but you also have um, Israel as, as the U.S. main ally in the region. And of course, uh, the Israelis, the Palestinians are always in this um, battle back and forth. Um, is there a way that the U.S. can help resolve this issue or should the U.S. pull out completely? Uh, what would be the, what, what if any role should the U.S. have in that engagement? The U.S. role, first of all, it's not symmetrical. Israel and Palestinians. Israel is the occupying power. It's a harsh, brutal occupier. Read the Israeli press every day. There's violence and atrocities in the occupied territories. Uh, Gaza is a total catastrophe. Two million people living in what amounts to a prison. It's almost unlivable. Constant attacks. The West Bank, constant killings. I think about 80 Palestinians have been killed this year uh, by Israeli soldiers or settlers. So it's not symmetrical. The United States position has been to support Israeli violence. Under Trump, it became outlandish. Trump authorized the illegal annexation, Israel's illegal annexation of the Syrian Golan Heights and Jerusalem. Nobody in the world recognizes that. It's opposed by the Security Council resolutions. The US does what it wants. That's a superpower, nobody can stop it. Uh, happens to give massive support for uh, uh, US, uh, for Israeli atrocities. Actually, this goes back to the Iran nuclear weapons zone. The United States does not acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons. And there's a reason for that. 
course it does. They know it. Obviously it does. If you acknowledge that Israel has nuclear weapons, that raises the question of whether all U.S. aid to Israel is illegal under U.S. law because of the way they develop nuclear weapons. So you just don't talk about that in the United States. Just say it's unacknowledged. Well, uh, what could the U.S. do? Could be for the first time a course for peace and accommodation instead of for repression and violence. Okay, so I guess let's go to the to the main thing that's going on right now, which is Russia. Ukraine. Um, in the begin from the West perspective, um, the Republicans are saying, well, Putin's invaded because Trump is gone and you have a weak Joe Biden. Um, the Joe Biden has said, well, listen, we, we, you know, Putin's formidable. Um, plenty have said that NATO has sparked Putin to push him to this. Um, it's, it's quite a complicated situation, it seems. What is your read on why did Putin invade now? Uh, and where is this heading? Well, we can forget what the Republicans are saying. Trump was the most supportive uh, of the political figure of Russia in the whole political spectrum. Uh, but um, what's going on is for 30 years, uh, there was an agreement back in the early 90s by President H.W. Bush, first Bush, agreed with Gorbachev, Russian leader, that uh, they would allow Germany to be reunified and to join NATO, hostile military alliance. It's quite a concession from the Russian point of view if you look at the history, but he agreed there was a quid pro quo. Uh, NATO would not expand one inch to the east of, meaning east of Germany. Well, it's unequivocal. There's been a lot of lies about it, but you can look up the documents. They're in the National Security Archive online. Unequivocal, unambiguous. Uh, Bush lived up to it. Clinton didn't. As soon as Clinton moved in office, he started moving to expand NATO to the east. It was for domestic political reasons. He conceded that just to get the Polish vote, the East European vote, and so on. Uh, the Russians tolerated it. They didn't, they didn't like it. They objected this long before Putin. But they did make it very clear that there's a red line, Ukraine and Georgia, right in the geopolitical heartland. Every top level official understood this, who had any connection with Europe. Uh, George Kennan, Henry Kissinger, William Burns, head of the CIA, former head of the CIA, uh, Robert Gates, uh, second Bush's defense secretary, they all kept warning the US government that it's reckless and provocative to try to incorporate Ukraine within NATO. Well, the second Bush, 
did that. He offered Ukraine uh, membership in NATO. France and Germany blocked it. But US power is so extraordinary that it stayed on the agenda. Later years, the US has been moving to incorporate Ukraine directly into the NATO military command. NATO means US. Uh, well, it's all perfectly open. There's no serious, no secret about it. Uh, the Biden administration moved on to uh, formulate a last, last September uh, enhanced program of NATO integration for Ukraine, sending weapons, military, uh, uh, military uh, maneuvers, uh, joint maneuvers, and so on. I mean, it's so extreme that U.S. Army journals refer to Ukraine as a de facto member of NATO. Well, the Russians accepted this. They didn't, they opposed it said, no, we can't accept NATO admission. And finally, it came to a point where they decided to invade. Notice provocation is no justification. In a crazy country like this, you have to say that a thousand times. Because uh, otherwise, the whole propaganda apparatus starts to function. So let's say it. Provocation is not a justification. Invasion's a criminal act. It's like U.S. invasion of Iraq and so on. Uh, nevertheless, of course, it was provoked. It's kind of interesting to look at rhetoric in the United States. I said, you could do a couple of Google searches. They're interesting. You look up unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. You get, I don't know, maybe a million hits. Everybody has to call it the unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. That phrase has never even been used before. Barely. You almost never talk about unprovoked invasion. Look up unprovoked invasion of Iraq and nothing. Well, why unprovoked invasion of Ukraine? Because everybody knows it was provoked. So therefore, the propaganda machine has to go into operation. Uh, the, there have been some possibilities of negotiation. U.S. is opposed to them. Official U.S. policy, official, is the war must continue to weaken Russia severely. Okay, no negotiations. Uh, are there possibilities for diplomacy? To look into it, there seem to be, but right now it's moving. The Russians have also refused diplomacy, like Putin, uh, France, Macron, France said tried to uh, offer initiatives before the invasion to some kind of accommodation uh, without invasion. Uh, Putin simply rejected them. It was not only criminals, totally stupid, drove Europe into the pocket of the United States. Uh, the worst possible thing from the Russian point of view. Well, then comes the battle on the ground and and so uh, right now, Ukraine is made with enormous American aid. It's mainly satellite information, heavy weapons has made significant advances, but it's a huge gamble. The gamble is that if uh, Russia is driven to the wall, will Putin just 
pack up his bags and slink away silently? Or will he use weapons, conventional weapons, which of course he has, to devastate Ukraine? That's the gamble. It's a shocking gamble in my opinion, but that's the way it stands. I know you were uh, critical of the Trump administration for some of its moves, and but this this would seem, this gamble that you're talking about here with Biden would seem to be a larger gamble than what previous administrations have had to deal with. Um, what are your thoughts on how do you judge Joe Biden, President Biden, with the gamble he's taking here? On domestic policy, Biden has been a lot better than I expected and pretty admirable judging by normal presidential politics. Foreign policy, I think it's all wrong. It's just the same traditional, both China and Russia. I mean, I think he's right to supply defensive weapons. Countries attacked, it has a right to defend itself, but not to move to block negotiations not to insist on a policy that the war has to be fought to weaken Russia. The gamble on some level could backfire with what happens to Europe this winter with the potential looming energy crisis. Um, would that potentially bring the US or the Russians to the negotiation table if we see a extremely cold winter in, in Europe, uh, prices soaring and people not being able to heat their homes? The U.S., uh, I don't think the U.S. Uh, will care that much if Europe has a harsh winter. Remember, the U.S. is saved from all of this. It's Europe that suffers, not the United States. And if Europe is weakened, then uh, the question, the more fundamental question is whether Europe will accept it. Uh, right now, for example, doesn't get reported here, but over three quarters of Germans want negotiations now. Uh, they don't want to suffer from this. Will they agree to suffer to hang on to Washington's coattails? Don't know. Uh, I think from the Russian point of view, they'll, you know, they're not suffering from the high prices. In fact, Russia's actually gaining from the high prices. It's bringing in more revenue from oil than it did before the war. Do Russia you and Saudi Arabia are cooperating. Saudi Arabia is a traditional US ally. Not so much anymore. It's cooperating with Russia openly to keep prices, keep prices up and uh, production down. You mentioned the U.S. power after World War II, um, and part of that was because the dollar became the reserve currency. Um, and so right now we're seeing perhaps maybe that challenge. You talk about these new alliances. Do you think that the dollar's status as reserve currency is under attack? Or not under attack, but being threatened? It's under, let's say, a pressure, pressure, but not really attack. I mean, the, uh, a lot of countries are, China has been trying to establish 
the renminbi, its currency, as a reserve currency. Now, that hasn't taken, made much progress. Uh, other countries now are evading the US sanctions with Russia by various means, border negotiations, uh, using Russian currency and so on, that might lead to a challenge to the dollar as the reserve currency. It's not on the horizon right now, but could happen. Okay, I'm gonna let you go with a few final, just short questions that you can give me your predictions, thoughts to how does the Russia-Ukraine conflict end in your opinion, if you had to guess? I think it's very likely that it will turn into a brutal, harsh stalemate in which both countries suffer severely, Europe will suffer, the global south just staying out of it. They don't want to be part of it. So India, Indonesia, other major south countries, they just aren't part of this. They don't want to say they don't want to be part of your war. The United States will benefit from it. Uh, because, uh, first of all, the United States is a huge oil producer, uh, the, uh, and it's uh, not suffering from the effects of the war. In fact, the fossil fuel industries and the military industries in the United States are just euphoric. Uh, the world will suffer, because remember that one of the things that's happening from this war is that it has reversed the limited efforts to try to deal with the existential urgent crisis of climate change. If we don't deal with that very soon, we're all finished. And this crisis has reversed the efforts to deal with it. So right now in the United States, instead of uh, uh, moving to end fossil fuel use, which we must do, they're opening up new fields for exploration New in the Gulf of Mexico and elsewhere. That means decades more of pouring poisons into the atmosphere when we don't have time. We're coming close to tipping points. It's constant reports from this scientific world about it. We may be destroying the possibility of organized human life in order to maximize the extraordinary profits of the fossil fuel industries. They're going through the roof, more profit than they've ever had. They love it. And prospects for more poisoning the atmosphere. But to the point of the profit to the fossil fuel company, um, we talked about the one China policy, I mean, the one China policy, the, uh, the, the China COVID policy, which crushed oil and gas demand. Uh, and in doing so, de-incentivized, uh, discouraged companies from drilling and so now, as they stopped drilling, production went down. Uh, as demand has picked back up, the companies have to drill to meet demand or um, human life can't function based upon how we live as a society. So, so on some level, should we blame the politicians who enforce these policies um, that, are make, that, are, that are now allowing the oil and gas companies to make all this money? I mean, what we have to do 
is completely clear. We have to cut back very sharply on fossil fuel use or else we're finished. Everything else becomes moot. Furthermore, the great powers, United States, China, to a lesser extent, Russia, big military, but small economy, they just have to accommodate. They have to work together to deal with crises that are international. They just have to. Okay. If that doesn't happen, if they maintain a warlike antagonistic posture, human society is not going to survive. Okay. Simple as that. Is the U.S. divided internally beyond repair? Divided. If it's beyond repair, we're finished. Do you think it is? That's my question. Do you, do you think that the U.S., the citizens of the U.S., can they be united again, or is it divided beyond repair? Internally? Yes. The United States is falling apart. It's... Uh, the, the, you go back to the talk about American decline. The main factor in American decline is internal. The country's falling apart. Uh, the Republican Party for many years has been simply drifting off the spectrum. It's now not a political party in any normal sense. It ranks with the comparatively it ranks with the European right-wing parties with neo-fascist origins. In fact, you can see what Republican parties coming to in the recent conferences in Budapest and Dallas. In Budapest and then later in Dallas, there were international conferences of the most reactionary forces in the world. Uh, the, star of the meetings was the conservative uh, political action conference. That's the core of the Republican Party. The big hero at the conferences, both in Budapest and Dallas, was Viktor Orban, who's destroyed democracy in uh, Hungary, uh, creating a Christian nationalist, racist state, proto-fascist, Russian independent thought. He was the star of the conference. Uh, Trump made speeches in both uh, lauding him. Uh, Tucker Carlson, the leading TV figure, just gushing over how wonderful he is. That's the future of the Republican Party. If they gain power, first and furthermore, it's a totally denialist party. They deny anything about global warming, any human involvement. When Trump was in office, they worked to maximize the use of fossil fuels, including the most dangerous of them, eliminate regulations that mitigate their effects. They're back in power, they'll do the same thing. And then we're finished, that's it. We're at the cusp of a, a, a total disaster. It's not long, we have time. There's a small window of opportunity. We lose it, no use, it's finished. Okay. It doesn't mean everybody dies tomorrow, but the decline is gonna to be 
so serious that uh, it's almost unimaginable. Okay, last question for you. Um, I've had a thesis I would love to hear your thoughts on. Um, the last hundred years or so, the global map has been drawn like that from Versailles, major World War II, uh, top down is how the map's been drawn. We've seen a severe uptick in civil unrest since COVID especially. Um, I think over the next hundred years, it's possible that the map could be redrawn from the ground up, more populist movements, people frustrated with, with policy. What are your thoughts on that? Is it possible or is there, are the states going to rule the next 100 years? Yeah. You know, the famous quote by Yogi Berra, that prediction is hard, particularly about the future. <laughs> it is. And uh, take a look at the tendencies developing now. Uh, large majority of young people in the world are African. Things go on like this, Africa will be by far the most populous country. But much of it is going to be unlivable because of the global heating. Large parts of South Asia are on the verge of becoming unlivable. Large parts of the Middle East. Uh, China is suffering huge uh, ecological problems, uh, heat and drought. It's very difficult to see where the world is going to go unless we deal with the immediate problems like cutting back heating the atmosphere, stopping the threat of nuclear war, unless we deal with these predictions pointless. There won't be an, any possibility for organized human society to survive. Okay. Well, you have been gracious with your time. I appreciate this. Um, and uh, I'm sure you will have a lot more books and projects coming out as you're always releasing new stuff. Any, any insight of what's coming down the pipe from you? There's a couple. It's one called Illegitimate Authority that's coming out soon. Others right along the way. <laughs> it's a very okay. dangerous time. I mean, a lot of the books are basically interview books. Mm, yeah. Okay. Well, listen, I would love to get you back on maybe early next year. Hopefully we'll have some kind of resolution to the Ukraine-Russia um, brouhaha and, and see what's going on in the world then. So thank you so much. Okay. Okay. There it is. Noam Chomsky. Uh, we covered a lot of ground, a lot of topics. Hope you guys enjoyed that. Uh, give me your feedback. I'm sure, as I said, it's hard to be a partisan uh, when you're talking to Noam, because he takes all sides of various issues. And so um, I know if you listen to this podcast, you probably it sometimes love what he said, and other times you didn't, which is why I love talking to him. Okay, let me know, warroommedia.com. What did you like? What didn't you like about the legend Noam Chomsky? <laughs>